there. I'm Sue Elvis from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 61. I don't know if anybody has noticed, but this podcast is a couple of days late. I'm really sorry about that. We have all been sick this week. Actually, we've been sick for the last couple of weeks, taking turns at looking after each other while we've not been feeling very well. So what am I going to talk about today? I thought I'd just make this a fairly quick podcast, though of course, usually I get carried away. And when I think that I'm going to be short, I usually go well over time. But that's the aim, is to make this a fairly brief podcast. I'd like to talk a little bit about chores. Yes, I've mentioned that magic word. Maybe I should put it in the title. Maybe a few people will listen. I also have some resources this week to share. Because I've been sitting on the sofa a lot, not having much energy to do anything but browse the computer, that's what I've been doing. Just flicking between websites, looking for things that might interest my girls. I want to share some of the real-life maths things that I've found. So I hope you'll find all that interesting and will listen to this episode. shall we start? Shall we start with the magic one, the chores? I have had a lot of people still coming to my blog to read my posts on chores. I don't know if they like the answer that I've given them, how to get children to do them. Anyway, people keep coming back. It's one of the most popular topics on my blog. I've been thinking about when kids are very small. You know, they want help. Mine always used to like to hand me the pegs when I was doing the washing. They always wanted to get up next to me at the sink and help me wash the dishes. They didn't even mind cleaning the bathrooms. They wanted some spray and a cloth. They were quite happy to help me. I'm sure most families understand this stage in children's development. Why do children go from wanting to help to not wanting to help? Do they just discover that chores aren't as much fun as they used to think they were when they were little? Do they suddenly think, how could I have ever thought that cleaning a bathroom was good fun? Well, I don't think cleaning a bathroom is much fun at all. But I do remember Jim Rose saying to me, I love cleaning bathrooms, don't you, Mum? What I think she really enjoyed was, was doing things for me. Doing things that I was doing, sharing in the activity of cleaning the bathroom. Perhaps our children pick up on our own attitudes about chores and housework. Perhaps they hear us complaining about them. Because we all do complain. We've got to wash the dishes again. As fast as we do the washing, there's another load to hang out. Then there's the ironing. But yes, people do complain about doing chores. So why should children want to do chores if they hear adults complaining about them? Though I don't think chores are much fun at all, and I don't want to go around saying, I really love cleaning bathrooms, when I don't. That's just not true. But we could say, I really love helping you. I'm happy to clean the bathroom for you. We don't like the job, but we do like doing it for a different reason. I like having a clean bathroom and using a clean bathroom. I guess that's another good reason for doing chores. We could pass on a positive attitude about chores to our children by using the right words. 
I love cooking for you. Let me do that for you. I love helping you. I like looking after you. Because of course we do. We like doing things for the people that we love. And that's a good attitude to pass on. The other words that I've been thinking that we could say more often are thank you. How often do we say thank you to our family? We always make a point of saying thank you to people outside our families, all our friends, if they do something for us. We make sure that we say thank you. But do we always remember to thank our children, our husbands, our wives for things they do for us? For example, the chores. Do we say thank you for cleaning my bathroom? Or do we treat that chore as something that was just run-of-the-mill, something that children had to do? It was their duty. They don't really need thanks for it. We're all working together. This is just part of the work of the family. We don't really need to thank each other for the things that we are doing. I still think thank yous make life go more smoothly. They bring a little bit of joy into our lives. It's also good to know that people appreciate our efforts. Even if we have to do something, it does make it a lot easier, more rewarding if somebody notices what we're doing. Our words can bring joy to others, and I think we should especially bring that joy to our own families. We can also say thank you for other things. It doesn't just have to be chores. Thank you for watching that video with me. I enjoyed spending time with you. Thank you for cooking the dinner for me. It was delicious. Thank you for taking the dog for a walk. I didn't feel like going out today. I was tired. Thank you for chatting with me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening. I felt like talking about that to somebody today. Thank you for the hug. It was a beautiful hug. You give the best hugs. Yeah, there's lots of opportunities that we can say thank you. I guess we just need to watch out for them. It's Friday afternoon here in Australia, and this morning... My daughters, Imogen, who is 21, and Charlotte, who is 18, they went to a funeral. It was the funeral of one of our parishioners. They were singing in the choir for the funeral. We all intended to go to the funeral, but Sophie, who's 14, is still not quite well. Now, the person who died, he died unexpectedly last week. He hadn't been ill, but a few days ago he had a heart attack. Of course, his family are devastated, and his friends are really very, very surprised. I guess shocked. They didn't have time to say goodbye. Now, the last time I spoke to this person was about three weeks ago. We went to a parish lunch, and I found myself next to this person, and I struck up a conversation with him. He'd recently come back from a trip overseas. I wasn't exactly sure of the details of the trip, I'd heard a little bit from a mutual friend. I got the idea that he'd gone overseas to visit a family member who was dying. But I didn't really know anything more than that. So, when the subject of his overseas visit came up, I said to him, Did you go overseas for a sad reason? And immediately his eyes filled with tears. He turned his head away and dabbed at them with his handkerchief from his pocket. And I knew that he'd been deeply affected by the death of whoever it was that he had gone to visit. 
though I could have avoided that conversation altogether. It was me that asked him about it. I also could have moved away at that point because he was crying. I might have got a bit embarrassed about it. I might have thought I'm upsetting him. He's getting embarrassed. But I didn't. What I did was I put my arms around him and we had a big hug. This is a person that I'm not very close to. I speak to every now and then when I see him at Mass. But I wouldn't say he was a close friend. But it didn't seem to matter. He was grieving, and I was there, and I just did what felt natural, and that was put my arms around him, and we had a hug. When I heard that he had died, I felt so thankful that I'd done that, and that I had continued talking to him for quite some time afterwards, that I hadn't moved off. I am really, really grateful that I had that opportunity to have that conversation with that person on that day. Yeah, we never know what will happen to people. We don't take advantage of moments that we are together to say things that we should say, to offer comfort when it's needed, not to worry about ourselves, about how we're going to feel about it, or even worry about upsetting the other person, but just to do what we should do, to offer comfort to somebody who needs it, regardless of who they are. So I'm really, as I said, grateful that something prompted me that day to do that, to share that hug, that special moment. Now because we've all been sick for the last two weeks, I haven't really got a lot of news as far as what we've been doing. We've been doing a lot of sitting around, a lot of lying on beds. Not anything very exciting to share with you. The funeral today was probably the most out of the ordinary thing that has happened to us for quite some days. And even then, not all of us went. My daughter Imogen was hoping to go to the Nature Reserve yesterday to record her next music video. But Sophie, who's our videographer, our camera operator, wasn't really well enough to get up early yesterday and go out and film a music video. So that has been postponed to next week. And as I keep saying, next week is going to be a normal week. Well, maybe next week will, maybe it won't. I guess we'll find out when we get there. I suppose what we've been doing is a lot of living in the moment, just accepting circumstances that we have no control over, trying not to complain about the way we're feeling or the things that we're not getting done just making the most of where we are each day. Well, at least I've had time to look for some more resources. I've been thinking about maths again. I come back to this topic periodically. Real life maths. Because I like to strew maths in front of my girls. And I'm always looking for interesting things that might tempt them to learn a little bit more about maths. I don't know if I talked about this before. Probably I already have. But I think there are two types of real-life maths. There's the maths that occurs in our children's everyday lives, things they're going to learn from because they need the maths, things they come in contact with personally. And then there's real-life maths that belongs to other people in the world. And if you Google real-life maths looking for resources, you'll probably come across real-life maths to do with other people. I think it's interesting for our children to see maths in action in anybody's lives, 
Why should I learn these maths, Mum? Well, maybe they haven't got a use for certain maths in their lives at the moment. I think it's quite all right for them to say that they don't need that maths. But maybe they will be interested in how other people are using maths in real life. I guess it depends on the child. What I object to, though, is when people try to disguise maths examples, maths problems as real-life maths. For example, the Yummy Math website is described as a real-life maths website, and it's a very interesting website. We've gone there a number of times, and we like reading all the stories about how people are using maths in real life. So many situations where maths is used, and we didn't even realize. What I object to, though, is the worksheets that go with those stories. The stories themselves are very interesting, but then to expect children to work through lots of problems based on those stories, I think, is no different from textbook maths. Well, maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe it's more interesting because you know that these problems were worked out by somebody in real life. And I think that's the problem. They've already been worked out by somebody else, and we're making our children work them out in their own turn. What's the point? Somebody has already done that. It's not real work for our children. It's just seeing if they can do similar problems to somebody else. Can they think their way through the problem? Have they got the math skills to do the problems on the worksheet? Well, my girls object to that. I really don't blame them because I'm not interested in sitting down and working out somebody else's problems as well. I don't mind working out my own bank account problems related to my own life, but I'm not really interested in working out how much waste is produced on ocean liners, for example. I'm interested in the results of those calculations, but I don't really want to sit down and work them out for myself. And so I understand why my children don't want to work them out either. So I have been very disappointed by a lot of the things that I find online, which are described as real life maths. It's just second-hand real-life maths, as far as I'm concerned. So, where are we going to find examples of real-life maths in our own children's lives? Well, if we look really carefully with our eyes open, be maths detectives, we can find all sorts of maths situations. Of course, the famous one is cooking fractions, but maths is more than fractions. We've got the oven temperatures. Do we use Celsius or Fahrenheit? What if our recipe says Fahrenheit and we really need Celsius? What about a slow oven or a hot oven? What do they mean? What temperatures correspond to slow and hot? How fast are we allowed to drive? What do those numbers mean on our odometers? How long will it take us to get to town? Do we need to catch a bus or a train? Do we need to use a timetable? We use numbers when we're making things. Measurement. All sorts of examples of maths in our everyday lives, but the problem is, with my children being twelve and fourteen, we have got to the point where we have observed quite a lot of these maths real-life situations, and we need more. I can't keep recording the fact that Gemma Rose used fractions when she made a cake, for example. She's not learning anything extra from doing that. So I've been trying to look for real-life maths in the bigger world, in our bigger world. Now I found out that we're having a census in Australia in August of this year. Our last census was in the year 2011.
We're going to have to fill out our census documents in August. What sort of questions are we going to have to answer? And who's going to use those answers? What are they going to be used for? These are things I've been talking about with my girls over the past couple of days. I've been on the website, the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Now that might sound a very dry site, but I've visited that site a number of times and it's fascinating. I have learned all kinds of things about our country, about the people living here. Yes, it's a very interesting site. And on that site, the other day, I found a game. It's called Run That Town. Unfortunately, the only way you can play the game is by downloading an app from the Apple Play Store. So we have to have an Apple device to play it. We don't have iPads and I don't have an iPhone, but I do have an iPod Touch. And so I did download the app and Gemma Rose had a wonderful time playing the game. Run That Town. Now this is how the game works. The person who is playing the game is given control over a postcode in Australia. One area in Australia that shares the same postcode. And all the data that's used in the game comes from that postcode. The number of people living in that postcode. The number of men versus women the different age groups, everything that was in the census of 2011 relating to that postcode is used in the game. So different scenarios are presented to the player of the game. For example, should a hall be built for the benefit of the people in that area? A positive and a negative reaction from somebody living in that area, I guess that's made up, is presented to the player. What age group is that person from? How many people of that age group live in the area? That type of thing. And then the player has to decide whether to approve the application to build the, the hall or not. It's rather a fun game, being in charge of an area which is a real area with real data. Playing the game gave us a wonderful opportunity to talk about things like local councils, building proposals, demographic how our area is different from other areas because Gemma Rose used our postcode to play her very first game. Now we think it might be interesting to play the game again with a postcode from a totally different area to ours. Maybe a Sydney suburb or maybe a place in the outback or maybe somewhere like Tasmania. Somewhere totally different from where we live. See how the game changes. So that's a game that you could play. Anybody can play that from anywhere around the world, I'm sure, even though this game is based on Australian data. Run that town. Another thing I found on the Australian Bureau of Statistics website is an interactive animation called Spotlight. It explains what the census is all about. And at various points in the animation, uh, a question is presented to the viewer. For example, Gemma Rose had to put in her age and the ancestry of her parents. Questions like that. And the animation was tailored to her particular information. Talking about building proposals made me think that maybe the council website of anybody's particular area would be a good source of real-life maths. Because, of course, councils work with money. Everything has to add up. 
It also gives us a chance to see what's going on in our local areas. I guess this spills over into other areas like geography. How's our land being used? How is our land being changed? Should we develop our land so that our people have more jobs? Should we keep our natural environment? It gives a lot of opportunities for talking about things which are real to us. Talking about things that are real to us or real to the world, I stumbled across a podcast called More or Less Behind the Stats. It's a Radio 4 British podcast, and the presenter is a person called Tim Harford. He investigates the numbers in the news. Are they always reliable? The news might not be in our local area, but some things affect all of us. I was listening to one of his podcasts about the amount of plastic that is finding its way into the oceans. And some foundation is stating that by the year 2050, there will be as much plastic in the ocean by weight as there are fish. So I guess that situation would affect anybody in the world who is worried about the environment, who eats fish. Was the alarming claim justified? Well, that's what they talked about in the podcast. There's lots of other episodes that relate to world news. So that might be some other way of tempting our children, especially our older children, with some real-life maths. More or less, Behind the Stats podcast. You'll find that one on iTunes. Talking of podcasts, I found another one called Math Dude. Quick and dirty tips to make math easier. At first I thought it would just be a collection of podcasts telling children how to add up or how to do multiplication, how to add fractions, that type of thing. But actually it's a lot more interesting than that. It again is trying to relate maths to the real life world. Each podcast is only about 10 minutes long. Sophie was listening to one yesterday about histograms. Now, histograms could just be a dry subject, but when you can see where they're used, it becomes a lot more interesting. Sophie uses histograms a lot in her photography. And the next two podcasts in the series actually talk about photography. So Sophie has been tempted to listen to those ones. I was listening to one the other day, purely out of my own interest, about how Egyptians used to add and subtract. They used to use tally sticks. They also had a way of recording using symbols, a little bit like Roman numerals, I guess. So that might be a podcast worth investigating. Go through the archives, dip into episodes that do sound interesting, either to children or maybe parents as well. Now, while I was hopping around the internet yesterday, going from site to site on a bit of a trail, I came across a video called The Joy of Stats. Now, I haven't seen this, but it is on Vimeo. Someone gave it a good write-up, said it was very interesting. So I'll put that link in the show notes in case you'd like to go and, and investigate that one for yourself. There's also a page on the Open Learn website to do with The Joy of Stats video. Yeah, that's a British site. There's a wealth of information on that site all to do with open learning, university learning, and they link up to a lot of TV shows, documentaries. They use a lot of those in their courses. There's also a lot of free courses available. 
I have one more game I want to tell you about. Now, this is an educational game that's supposed to entertain, and I don't really like those, and my girls don't like them either. But this one has a very good review, and somebody wrote that it it is a very rare education game. Children will play the game to be entertained, and they will need some maths to play it. It's not the sort of game where kids feel like they are being made to play the game in order to learn the maths. You just need maths to play the game. The game is interesting enough on its own. I hope I've described that well enough. But Sophie had a go yesterday, and she enjoyed it. Gemma Rose was playing it as well. And if it can get past Gemma Rose, it could probably get past a lot of people who are suspicious that games are being presented to them as a secret way of getting them to learn their maths. Oh, so what's the game called? It's called Calculords. Now, Calculords is an app game. It's available as a Windows app, a Google app, and an Apple app. So, as long as you have a PC or an Android or Apple device, you can play this game. I have just thought of another example of real-life maths that I discovered a few days ago. And this is to do with Google Earth. I downloaded Google Earth Pro. It's a free download. And then I started playing around traveling the world. You've probably done it on Google Maps. I visited lots of my old homes, places that Andy and I have lived in the past. The girls got very interested because they wanted to see some of the homes that they've lived in in the past when they were babies, say, or homes that we used to live in before they were born. It was very interesting. Andy and I also visited our childhood homes, which were of great interest to our children. They wanted to see where we lived when we were their age or younger. We were also interested to see the changes that have gone on around the homes that we have lived in in the past. All of them are still standing, but yes, there have been changes, a lot of changes. I guess that's inevitable. We also visited Disneyland, and we went and had a visit at Buckingham Palace. I guess all this could be called geography. We could take screenshots and put them in our notes as geography we used a geographical tool while we were hopping around the world. But we can do more than just look at places using Google Earth or Google Earth Pro. We can actually record virtual tours. A lot of people have done this, and we can look at other people's virtual tours. Jim Rose and I took a virtual tour of all the places in Jane Austen's novels the other day. We're reading Persuasion at the moment. Yeah, I've mentioned this a few times. We're taking our time over it. We're getting there. We're getting into the last third, I think, of the book. But we visited places like Bath and Lyme and other places that Jane Austen mentions in her novel Persuasion. Somebody has put together a virtual tour. They have included some details about each place and how it relates to Jane Austen's novel. We can do the same. I've been thinking about how I could make a virtual tour of all the homes that we've ever lived in. I could add information on pop-out boxes about the places, little details that might interest our children. Of course, children can make their own virtual tours. To make a virtual tour, you just put place markers at all the places that you want to be part of your tour. And then you can add information at each of those sites. Say something about the place. And this all comes up in the sidebar. And then by clicking on the place name in the sidebar, 
Google Earth takes you to that place. So you look at the information at one place, go to the sidebar, click onto the next name, and you're whizzed around the world to the next place, or you hop over country, wherever the next place is. That's one sort of virtual tour. But I also discovered that you can make a video that Google Earth can take you on your tour automatically. You just start it rolling and it just takes you all over the world from one place to another. Then other people have made very sophisticated Google Earth videos using other software in cooperation with Google Earth and Movie Maker. I think it's something that Sophie could do, something maybe that I would like to do, but don't have the passion to dedicate that amount of time to learning how to do it. But yes, Sophie certainly could learn how to do that. There's some very impressive videos on YouTube, quite fascinating to watch. But do our children really want to make virtual tours? I think if I said to my girls, why don't you make a virtual tour of all the places associated with Jane Austen? They wouldn't want to do it. Somebody else has already done that. We've already looked at that, but maybe I could choose something slightly different. But no, that's not part of their real world. I don't think that that would interest them enough to do. But if it was something personal, they might do. There's a website called Real Math World, I think. I forgot to write it down. But it uses Google Earth to teach children maths. And it talks about being real world maths or real life maths. Interest children in the maths in the world. I was quite excited when I saw this website. And that's how I got onto Google Earth Pro in the first place. I watched their tutorials and worked out how to put place marks at various locations on the globe. I ended up putting some place marks in our local area. The first one I placed on the map corresponds to our house. I made it very personal. I learned how to measure. How do we measure between two points on the map? How do we measure a perimeter, the distance around our playing fields, for example? So I thought these are things that our girls might be interested in. They might like to find out what the distance is between our house and town, or how far they're running if we go a particular route. That's math that's part of their real life. It's things they might be interested in. They might be motivated to do that. But will they be interested in doing a lot of problems that other people have put together? For example, if you Google the words Real Life Maths and Google Earth, you will come up with a number of entries. People have put together some problems for students to solve mathematical problems using Google Earth. And when I looked at them, I was really quite disappointed. Children are being sent to a particular place on the globe. They zoom in. Maybe they can see a school or a car park. And then they're asked questions like, how many white cars are there? What ratio of white cars are there to all the cars in the car park? How many circles can you see in the school playground? How far is it from the school to the bus stop? That type of question, which I think is just like a worksheet. It's not relevant to our children's lives, and I don't see my children being interested enough in working their way through these problems. It doesn't benefit them in the slightest. All it does is test whether they know how to measure a distance 
a perimeter, whether they know what a ratio means, whether they can identify a circle, for example. So I think it's another case where real-life maths is being disguised as a worksheet. Yeah, of course children might find the novelty of using Google Earth worth it. It might be a more interesting way of doing a worksheet, but it's a worksheet when it boils down to it. But I still like Google Earth Pro. I think we could have a lot of fun with it on our own terms. So there are a few of the things that I discovered on the internet this week, and I'm going to put links to all those resources in the show notes on my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family. I'm also going to put them on my Pinterest boards. Well, actually, a number of them are already on my Pinterest boards. I put them on my Unschool Maths board and my Unschool Geography History board. I've also been sharing links here and there on Facebook on my timeline as public entries. So if you'd like to follow along with my timeline, please do. I'd like to thank all the people who sent me friend requests. I've got a, a number of new Facebook friends and I'm delighted. I'm looking forward to sharing unschooling with you via Facebook, getting to know you and your families. And thank you for all the messages people sent me explaining our connection. We're connected by unschooling. Because I've had a few Facebook friend requests from people that I wonder, why do they want to know me? They're a bit suspicious. And if I haven't already accepted your friend request and you have sent it because you know me through this podcast or my blog, please send me a message if you haven't already done so. Well, I think that I have spoken a lot longer than I intended, but I'm getting used to that. I think that I speak far too much. Then again, maybe when I've taken out all my mistakes, this podcast won't be as long as I think it is. I seem to have had quite a lot of trouble today saying things the way I want to say them. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I'm not quite 100% well, and I'm a bit conscious of my voice today. So I hope you've been able to persevere through my podcast, regardless of my voice. So I hope next week will be a normal week for us, and that by the time I record my next podcast, I'll have my normal voice back as well. One last thing that I've just remembered that I wanted to tell you about. If you have been to my blog over the last few days, you might have noticed that I've put a podcast player on my home page. And the player has all 60 episodes of my podcast in it. By the time you listen to this, there'll be 61 episodes in it. You can scroll through the menu and choose whatever podcast you would like to listen to from the archives. You can go right back to the first one and see all my embarrassing mistakes, I guess. I discovered that player the other day when I was going through my settings on Podbean because I hadn't realized that I had only authorized 20 of my podcasts, my last 20 podcasts, to be available in iTunes. At first I didn't know why only 20 episodes were available, and so I did some investigating on Podbean, going through all my account, and I discovered an option which asks me the question, how many episodes do I want to put in my Podbean feed? And this is the feed that's made available to iTunes. I had it set at 20, which is the default setting. So I changed that instantly to 100. Not that I have 100 episodes. Maybe I'm being optimistic that I will get to 100, but I thought it gives me a bit of leeway there. I don't have to think about it again for another, what, 39 episodes. 
Wow, 39 episodes. Can I make another 39? Well, we shall see. So now you can access all my podcasts via iTunes or on my blog through the Podbean player. Of course, you can also access them through Podbean itself. So I guess the only other thing that I've got left to say is a big thank you for listening to this episode. I get a bit hesitant about asking people to share my link, but if you do find my podcasts helpful, perhaps you could share them with other people. Spread the word about unschooling. That would be good. So I hope you have a wonderful week. I hope to be back in a few days' time with episode 62. Until then, trust, respect, and love unconditionally. Thank you.